So one of the most difficult things in the world is to get socks on your wet feet in a hurry. (laughs) Trust you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 1. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, we thank you for the joy of a baptism Sunday. For this reminder that you are the God whose grip is always tighter on us than ours is on you. You're the covenant-keeping, promise-making, sovereign, providential God who rules and reigns over all things. And you're good. You're like a loving father. Thank you for your spirit that's here already and at work. I pray that your spirit would indeed lead us into all truth, truth that is more than an idea, truth that is a person, that we would have a fresh revelation of Jesus Christ and that we would be shaped and conformed into his image. We pray this to the glory of your name. Amen. Okay, open up to Luke chapter 1. We're looking at verses 39 to 56 this morning. Um, I want to recap some of what we were talking about last week and remind you uh, that Advent means the coming. And in one sense, when we consider this Advent season leading up to Christmas, we are remembering that Jesus Christ came. Now that's something to get excited about, isn't it? It's far better news than candy canes and the guy with the big belly and the white beard. The fact that God took human flesh. You know, friends, we go through this pattern every year, and one of my concerns perennially is that we would begin to lose the import of that. You know, that familiarity would breed complacency, if not contempt. But I, I pray that during this Advent season, as we remember that Christ came, That those words from Charles Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, would find a place in your heart. You know, by the way, um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing is probably the song with the best incarnational theology that we sing all year. I love that line. You probably know it. It says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Right? That's, that's Christmas. That's Advent leading up to that. That the Godhead himself was veiled in flesh. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. He is Jesus, our Emmanuel. This is the very heart of Advent. Jesus is our Emmanuel, God with us, that at this moment in time, some 2,000 years ago, God himself took human flesh and came to save and rescue his people from a very dark moment in history. Now, this is another thing that we sometimes gloss over because we get so caught up in the joy of Christmas and the joy of Advent that we fail to see in the text what was so plain. Just a few verses ago, Luke told us that all of these things that we're reading about in this first advent took place when Herod was the ruler. And you might also remember from Matthew's account that 
Herod was such a wicked ruler that he carried out something that we call the slaughtering of the innocents. And so make no mistake, when Jesus Christ, when God was veiled in human flesh and Jesus Christ came on this rescue mission, he came at a time of great wickedness. He came into a moment where God's people themselves were being ruled over by one of the worst, most wicked, evil men to ever walk the face of the earth. Now listen, the 20th century was filled with them, wasn't it? When we look back over the last century, we think about horrible human beings like Hitler who killed some six million Jews in concentration camps. Or maybe you think about Joseph Stalin who put Hitler to shame, killing some 40 million of his own people through starvation and execution. Or maybe you think of Mao Zedong who, again, puts them all to shame by killing 60-some million of his own people. But when you read about this moment in history where God took human flesh, where Jesus Christ came, you have to understand that God's people are living under the oppressive rule of someone who would be numbered among those guys. They were dark days indeed. Well, that's maybe something that you feel particularly this year in Advent. You know, you look around yourself and you see a world that feels like it's on a bobsled to hell. Every place you look, evil seems to be on the rise in ways that are large and small. Now listen, I know this example might seem silly, but you have to understand, for me, the example I'm about to give you is indicative of a bigger problem, okay? I, um, I started watching the Toronto Maple Leafs again this year after many years of um, abandoning them. And I discovered that every commercial break I'm watching is promoting online gambling. Have you noticed that? What happened, right? It wasn't that long ago where if you wanted to participate in gambling, you had to like get in your car and drive to someplace seedy and, and carry it out. Now it's like in the middle of the game, I'm trying to watch a hockey game and I'm being bombarded with messages that want to encourage me to pull out my phone and participate in this blight upon society, this rot of gambling. I can give you other examples. Whenever I turn on the television set, I, I see sexual perversion celebrated all the time. Almost every television show that I watch, I'm inundated with messaging that does two things. Celebrates sexual perversion and belittles righteousness. You know, there is this sense that over the last couple of years, this descent into evil in our society has not only just continued, but it's actually accelerated. And so once again, we find ourselves like God's people 2,000 years ago, living under wickedness. Now listen, in one sense it's true. Jesus told his disciples that when you see everything getting worse, don't be alarmed. That's what Jesus told his disciples. He said that, when you see society falling apart and oppression on the rise, it's a sign that we are getting closer and closer to the end. That as we move closer to the end of the age, there will be a rush toward wars, there will be an increase in famines, there will be earthquakes. And so Jesus says, when you see those things happening as a Christian man or woman, 
Don't be surprised. You're nearing the end. I believe we're seeing that around us right now. But in another sense, we also know that um, it's biblically normal for God's people to find themselves in bad situations. As Christians, we should expect that the world would be set against us and that evil would be on the rise and that persecution of Christians would subsequently follow. We are also reminded from Scripture that it is precisely in the darkest night that the light of the world comes. Friends, that's the account that we have in Scripture of Advent. In these wicked times, when Herod was ruler and he was slaughtering the innocents, Jesus Christ came to Mary and Joseph. Jesus Christ came to rescue and save and deliver his people. Advent. Christ came in the darkest hour. Advent is also the time when we look back and not only remember that Christ came, but when we look forward and we remember the biblical promises, the promises from Jesus that just as he came once, he will return again. And that his coming again is as certain and secure as the fact that he took flesh in the first place 2,000 years ago. He came the first time to rescue and deliver, to save. He will come again. And when he comes again, our Advent hope, our Advent faith, is that he will come again, he will deliver those who've put their faith and trust in him, and he will bring just judgment to a world that is determined in sin. And so that is our Advent hope. This simple fact that Christ came in the darkest of days. And so if you look around your life these days and you feel like you are living in darkness, you feel like you're living in a time of growing evil, take hope in this Advent promise that Christ not only came in the darkest of days, but he will come again when darkness reaches its maximum point. You know, this is the Christian hope that shapes everything. It's, it goes even deeper than just a Christian hope that shapes everything. It is um, the, the foundation of our Christian response to everything. Christ will return. Advent. Christian men and women have this hope that shapes their response to everything because we believe that, especially in hardship, precisely in that moment of growing darkness, Christ came and he will come again. Let's move that from an abstract hope to something personal. Would you engage in a brief thought experiment with me this morning? To just to take stock of your life and consider what is your greatest worry right now?
What is it? You don't have to say it out loud. Just become aware of it. What's your greatest fear? What's the thing that you would identify as the greatest hardship in your life? What is your lament? Think about that. And in the face of that thing, preach a good sermon to your own soul. Christ came, he will come again, and let that truth shape your hope in the face of that worry, in the face of that hardship, in the face of that lament. You know, it is the promise of Christ's return that allows us to live with the kind of joy and confidence that's only really possible in retrospect. But you can live it now. Let me say it a different way. Whenever we go through hardship and we come out the other side, there's always a sense of joy and relief. But our certainty that Christ will return means that the hope that we will have on that day, we can now celebrate by faith even in this moment. That's Advent hope. Stick with my Toronto Maple Leafs analogy. It's as though the Toronto Maple Leafs went to the opening puck drop of the season, already guaranteed that they were going to win the Stanley Cup. And they still had to play the entire season. They still played every game. They still made every pass, made every check. Throughout the season, there were hardships and injuries and challenges and difficulties. But through it all, they knew that the season would end with the Stanley Cup being celebrated and paraded down Bay Street. Friends, that's the Christian hope. That's Advent. You still play the game, but you know how it works out. Christ will return. And so you can take all of that joy that will be yours on that day, and by faith, you can load it on the front end. Christ came and he will come again. Last week we looked at Gabriel's visit to Zechariah and to Mary. And this week we're going to look at Mary's visit to Elizabeth. So let's look at verses 39 to 45. We're told in verse 39, in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judea. I think this is a beautiful picture that we need to just stop on for a moment. In this, we see a beautiful picture of friendship, right? Mary, who has just received incredibly good news, the very first thing she wants to do is get to Elizabeth and share it with her. You know, Christian man or woman, on this side of Christ's return, we're often faced with hardships. And one of the graces that God has given to you is the grace of friends. People that you can turn to, both in difficult moments and in joyful. I'd actually suggest to you that that's how you know who your true friends are. If you can share bad news with someone, 
And they stand alongside you in empathy. And they point you to the promises of God. Well, that's a true friend. If you can share good news with someone, and they're not jealous of you, but they celebrate God's work in your life, and they celebrate that your life is going well, well, that's a true friend too. See, with true friendship, your joys are doubled and your griefs griefs are halved. That's what's happening here. Mary receives this incredibly good news from Gabriel and she arises and she goes to Elizabeth. What does it say in the passage? It says that Mary took her time on the way to Elizabeth. Stop for a pack of gum. What does it say? She went with haste. Mary was quick to obey. I love this picture in Scripture. It's a picture that carries with it this sense of urgency. We've already said that this all took place in the darkest of times. But that Mary was not paralyzed by hardship. Instead, she responded to the promises of God with haste. Listen, sometimes life is really, really hard for you. And in those moments, it's easy to turn in on yourself and to feel paralyzed or immobilized. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to turn. But look to Mary. In this moment, she received a promise from God, and then she made haste in obedience. And the same is true for you. In your darkest moment, in your hardest time, receive and trust and believe a promise from God and be urgent and diligent in your obedience. Now you you think, okay, R.D., well, that's fine, but the angel Gabriel visited Mary. I've never had an angel visit me with the promises of God. And I would suggest to you that that might be true, but you actually have something better. You have a better messenger in the midst of your hardship and darkness. You have God's word. You don't need to hope that someday you'll be visited by an angel in bodily form. All you have to do is reach to your bookcase and pull out your Bible and behold the promises of God to you. Lay hold of them with haste. Obey them. In the Bible, you have from cover to cover the promises of God. And all those promises, Paul says, find their yes and their amen in Jesus. So like Mary, we live lives that are shaped by urgent obedience. Diligence in the waiting. Not paralyzed, not immobilized, not, but with haste. Think of Jesus' parable of the good stewards. The ones who know that the master of the house might return at any moment. And so with urgency and haste, they do what the master has told them to do. That's the picture. Mary arose and she went with haste to see Elizabeth. Look at verse 40. 
And when Mary entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So, so this is one that you might move over very quickly, but it's actually a very important moment in Scripture. We have Mary with a baby in her womb, greeting face-to-face Elizabeth with another baby in her womb. And friends, this is more than just another moment in the unfolding narrative that's set before us. It's actually a significant moment in salvation history. Because what we have here in bodily form is a turning of the page. We have the Old Testament meeting face-to-face with the New Testament. We have Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the one that Jesus said, there's never been anyone born of woman better than you. All of the Old Testament embodied in the baby in Elizabeth's womb. Standing and greeting Mary. In her womb is Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all the promises of God, the turning of the page in salvation history, the New Testament. Can you imagine this moment? Wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall when pregnant Mary meets with pregnant Elizabeth? It's just... It's just loaded with meaning and loaded with all of salvation history. This is that moment that bridges Old Testament to New. You, maybe you guys know this. My wife knows it well. I have a list of pet peeves as long as my arm. Okay? And I, and I'm, and I don't keep them to myself. And one of them that drives me bananas is the Christmas song that's sung sometimes. Mary, did you know? Do you know that song? Drives me bananas. Because it's like, the song goes, Mary, did you know? And the answer from Scripture is, yeah, she knew. She knew really, really well. Right? Gabriel visited her and said that the baby that was going to be conceived and grow in her belly was going to be the Savior of the world. She knew. She also knew because... When she's pregnant and she visits Elizabeth, in this moment, the Holy Spirit falls on Elizabeth and Elizabeth tells her. Mary, did you know? Yeah, she knew. It's right there. She knew in this meeting of these two people, embodying the fulfillment of Old Testament, meeting the New Testament, Mary knew that Christ was coming and that the spirit of Elijah that was in Elizabeth's womb would prepare the way. She knew. That's this moment in verse 41. Sorry, in verse 40. In verse 41, we're told, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit Well, I don't want to be controversial or say anything inflammatory on a baptism Sunday when we have visitors, but i got to preach the Bible. And you know, this is one of the most explicitly pro-life verses in all of Scripture. 
that the very first person to recognize the coming Messiah was a baby in the womb. Flipped and leaped with joy. This baby, John the Baptist, recognized Jesus in the womb also. And then John the Baptist would go on to spend his entire life leaping and pointing to Jesus. Verse 41. We're told in the second half of verse 41, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now again, we have the Old Testament meeting with the New Testament, and in this moment we see how the New Testament is better than the Old. The Holy Spirit, in this case, falls on a woman. Now that might not seem like a big deal to us, but it was a big deal to the original audience. See, Joel promised, one of the Old Testament prophets promised that on the last days, God's Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. Young and old, men and women. And Elizabeth has the Holy Spirit poured out on her. Verse 42. She's filled with the Spirit and she exclaims with a loud cry. Well, you know, this will be a pattern throughout Luke's writing, both in his gospel and in the Acts of the Apostles. People are filled with the Holy Spirit and they speak with boldness. Verses 43 to 45. Sorry, verse 42, she says, Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. See, Elizabeth declares God's blessing on Mary. She's filled with the Spirit. She's been given wisdom and knowledge. She understands what's happening. The Spirit's primary work is to glorify Jesus Christ. So she looks at the bulge on Mary's belly and she's like, yep, that's it. Because she's filled with the Spirit. And friend, for you and for me, all of this is loaded into this meeting of Mary with Elizabeth. And, and we could go even further in terms of pulling out Old Testament themes and applying them. But if you take nothing else from this meeting of Mary and Elizabeth, take this. Behold the sovereign care of God. Imagine all that took place all that had to be ordered and put in place, all the mechanisms that had to be superintended over to bring everything to this moment. That the prophecy of Malachi 4 would be fulfilled in the womb of Elizabeth. That the promises of God from the beginning would be fulfilled in the womb of Mary. That they would stand before one another in the darkest of days as the fulfillment of the promises of God. And so the first thing I want you to see here is Advent brings us hope because God is in charge of history. 
No matter how dark the day, no matter how dark your life, God is in charge. He's, he's the providential, sovereign God. Nothing is random. He brought that about. He hasn't abandoned his people. Verses 46 to 47, we'll move much faster through this. Mary and Elizabeth meet. Mary sings out. If you're sort of a churchy type person, you'll know that this is called the Magnificat. That's right. And it has nothing to do with kittens or cats. It's Latin for my soul magnifies. That's what Mary says. Look at verses 46 and 47. She says two things about herself. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. What does this mean? What does it look like for your soul to magnify the Lord? Well, if you're a Christian man or woman, any time that the choices that you make, the decisions that you live out, point to the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is your soul magnifying the Lord. Every time that you are faced with hardship and difficulty, but your hope remains secure, you are magnifying the Lord. You see how that works? Your life then in those moments becomes like a magnifying glass. Other people look at you. They see through you. They see the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you're faced with hardship, your life points to the greatness of the Lord. When you are blessed in a good innings, your life magnifies the Lord by showing that he is a greater prize. He is your greatest treasure. Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Verse 47, she says, my spirit rejoices. Again, we see Mary doing what all Christians do. She's rejoicing in the Lord God before the fulfillment of the promise. Jesus hasn't been born yet. But the promises that God has made to her allow her to have a spirit that rejoices on this side of fulfillment. In the dark days. See, that's, that's us. Trust in God. I want you just for a moment to imagine how your spirit is going to rejoice on that day when Jesus Christ returns and sets everything aright. How is your spirit going to rejoice when Jesus Christ returns and brings about that day when every tear will be wiped away, when this worn-out, weary world will be set aright and you will sin no more? How will you rejoice on that day? Well, the promise that we see fulfilled in Mary is that you can rejoice in that way today. Your soul magnifies the Lord. Your spirit rejoices in the promises of God. Verses 48 to 56, I'm not going to go through them all. I just want you to notice that 48 and 49, so Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Verses 48 and 49, for 
he has looked on the humble estate. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. So these are qualifying why her soul magnifies the Lord, why her spirit rejoices in the Lord. It's for these two reasons. Then the next bunch in verses 50 down to 55 are the and. Mary's saying, these things are all true. They're the reason why my soul magnifies the Lord, why my spirit rejoices. Those things are true. And then she says, and so much more. And his mercy is on those who fear him. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has helped his servant Israel as he spoke to our fathers. We've been talking about by faith rejoicing today with the promises of being fulfilled tomorrow, right? Bringing, bringing that rejoicing from tomorrow to today. And you might think, well, how am I going to do that, R.D.? And this is the answer. Mary turns her attention away from herself and to the Lord God. She takes her eyes off of all of the impossibility of her own setting. She takes her eyes off of all the oppression that God's people are living under. And she makes these declarations that are true of God. Look at the repeated refrain. He looked. He who is mighty. Holy is his name. His mercy. He has shown. He has brought down. He has fulfilled. He has helped. He has spoken. This is how Advent hope trickles into your day-to-day life. You take your eyes off of yourself and off of your plight and you fix them on him. And you receive his promises to you in Jesus. Verse 55. Mary says all of this is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Abraham. If you turn back in your Bibles, the promises that God made to Abraham were several. Genesis chapter 12, God took this man, Abram, and said, I will make you a great nation. In Genesis 15, Abram is doubting that the promise will be fulfilled because he doesn't have any children of his own. And God says, come on outside. And God says, look at the stars of the sky. Your offspring will be as many as the stars. Look at the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will be as many as the sand on the seashore. The promise of God to Abraham. In Genesis 22, God reiterates this promise to the angel of the Lord to Abram and says, as many as the stars of the sky, Abram, as many as the sand and the sea, that's how many your descendants will be. And Mary looks at her situation in this moment. And she sings out that this pregnancy is the fulfillment of those promises to Abram. Now you might be wondering how this works. Let me conclude with this. Our passage today looks forward to the moment of the saving work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is still in the womb, It's looking forward to that moment. But a couple decades later, 
Paul is going to write a letter to the Galatians. And that's looking back on that same moment. And Paul is going to tell the Galatians and tell us sitting here in Burlington today, that by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, you and I are the fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham. Let me say it a different way. When God took Abram out into the starry night sky and pointed up to the stars, and God said, behold all those stars, so many will be your offspring. You were one of those stars. When God said to Abram, look at the sand on the seashore, so many will be your offspring of the faithful. Because of Jesus, you were one of those grains of sand. And you know, friend, this is our Advent hope. That the God who could orchestrate all of human history, such that he made promises to Abram, and 2,000 years later, brought them to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And then 2,000 years from that point forward, people like you and I would be sitting in a church and we could claim that those are promises for us. This is a sovereign and trustworthy God. No matter how dark the days. And this is what we see in Mary's visit to Elizabeth. It's perhaps one of the most important themes in Advent that God keeps his promises and that we can trust this covenant-making, promise-keeping God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word speaks not only to the good times but to the difficult seasons. I ask and pray, Lord, that wherever we may find ourselves today that our hope would be in this. That Jesus, you came and you will come again. I pray, Lord, that that truth would so grip our hearts that our lives would be marked by joy and confidence. Knowing that you are trustworthy, you are strong and you are good. If you can order all of salvation history, surely you can order our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.